Psalm 107. Stories move us. We are fascinated by stories. We're captivated by stories. We're entertained by stories. We're sometimes even depressed by some stories. And many times we long to be a part of great stories, do we not? We particularly enjoy stories of rescue and deliverance. For sure, this isn't new to us today. In fact, it was the very stories contained within this 107th Psalm that motivated and encouraged the English Puritans as they crossed the Atlantic in search of a new life and religious freedom in this continent. Finally, on Monday, December 11, 1620, the pilgrims left the Mayflower and founded Plymouth Plantation. And in his personal writings on Plymouth Plantation, Governor William Bradford virtually takes Psalm 107 word for word verbatim as his own summary of their experiences of crossing the Atlantic and of their personal cries to God in their distress. Consequently, this psalm has become known as the Pilgrim's Psalm. Just as stories of redemption and deliverance motivate us, and even warm our hearts today. They provide a continual source of instruction as they echo back to us our own need for rescue and our own need of deliverance. Before we dive into this lengthy text before us this morning, let's just pause in prayer together. Lord, we are insufficient to plumb the depths of this passage, and it's not our goal to be honest. We don't want to know everything because we know only you know everything, yet we do desire to make connections that would cause us to be stirred afresh in our hearts, that we would see the steadfast love of the Lord, that we would hear these stories of redemption, and we would be moved to our core that we are not beyond the bounds of your rescuing power. Lord, we would praise you for what you have done, not only for your character, which is surely worthy of all praise, but for how you in time and space have acted. You have done things in this world for which you ought to be praised, and you are deserving of all thanks. So, Lord, unplug our spiritual ears this morning so we might truly hear the Word of God. Change us, Father, for your glory, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. There are three basic kinds of psalms that are characterized in the Psalter. There are hymns of praise. There are psalms of lament, as we looked at last week in Psalm 42. And there are psalms of thanksgiving. Last week we considered Psalm 42 together, this individual psalm of lament where the psalmist pours out his heart before God with words of confidence that track a movement toward God rather than away from Him. Psalm 107 is generally understood here to be a communal psalm of thanksgiving. That's why we had our scripture reading as a community this morning, trying to get as close as we can to the intent of this communal psalm of thanksgiving. 
But it's not only a psalm of thanksgiving because there's a twist at the end. The psalmist slows things down and reflects in a psalm of praise in verses 33 through 42. And then he caps things off with a call to wisdom at the end. Categories for the psalms are sort of a fluid system. So we can't jam them into certain categories and then walk away. We, there is, an, there is an always a, a flowing combination of things. There's a, a blending of these categories that we see even here this morning. And furthermore, the psalms are not organized how we might organize them today with a nice, neat table of contents at the beginning. Well, I'm looking for psalms of lament. Well, that's 1 through 50. Okay, I'm going to lament. And then uh, psalms of thanksgiving are 51 through 100. Wouldn't it be easy if they were like that? Well, they're not organized the way that we would organize them today, nor are they organized chronologically such that the first psalm is the oldest one. And then because it did take the Psalter about a thousand years to reach its final form, it's not that Psalm 150 is the most recent one. They're not organized thematically or chronologically. But don't take that to mean that they're just, just thrown in there at will. No, they are significantly placed. Psalm 107 is the beginning of the fifth and the final grouping or book, as they're called. And usually you'll see right above Psalm 107, you'll probably see book do you see that in your Bibles? This is the beginning of this final grouping or book in the Psalter. And it's clearly linked to the end of book 4, which is the end of Psalm 106. And in verse 47, if you see there, 106, 47, this psalm concludes with a prayer asking the Lord, Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us in among the nations. So book 5, which begins with Psalm 107, opens with the assumption that this prayer has been answered. It has. It is now an established fact. For in verse 3 of Psalm 107, what do we read? Those he gathered, gathered from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. What we find in Psalm 107 is a communal psalm of thanksgiving, calling God's people to render thanks for his steadfast covenant love to his people. The psalm of thanksgiving for how God has already brought his people out of exile. And although Psalm 107 lacks a clear or a specific context, which is a characteristic typical of the psalms, God's people are encouraged to see their own stories of redemption in these stories in this psalm. It's one of the most beautiful things about the psalm. It's as if they have an, an ageless backdrop for us in which we can see ourselves and are actually encouraged to see ourselves in these stories. So the basic overview of our psalm to give us, because it is a lengthier psalm this morning and we're seeking to tackle the whole thing, if you look on the screen here, we do see the basic structure of the Psalms. Verses 1 through 3 form this opening call to thanksgiving. In verses 4 all the way to 32, we find four separate stories of redemption. In verses 33 through 42, as we mentioned earlier, there's these reasons for praise in the form of a, of a hymn. And then finally in verse 43, 
there's this final call to wisdom as if the psalmist is like, don't, don't leave the room too early. You're not getting away without learning something. In fact, you'd be a fool if you did. So we see the basic structure that we'll consider here together. Let's first look at this opening call to thanksgiving, this call to give thanks. In verses 1 and three, through 3, we read, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from trouble and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. So here in verse 1, God's people are called to thank the Lord for two aspects of His character, His goodness and His steadfast, eternal love. God's goodness is fundamental to His character, as evidenced in Psalm 25, Psalm 86, Psalm 106, Psalm 118, and repeatedly throughout the Psalter, God's goodness is linked, like a link in a chain, to His steadfast love. He is not simply a good judge who rules with equity, but He also binds Himself in loving fidelity to the most unlovely of people. God's covenant, steadfast, faithful, loyal love that is mentioned here is this same word that is used repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. Well over 250 times in the Old Testament. The Psalms alone contain over a half of those references. And Psalm 107 mentions this covenant has said love of the Lord six times. And such a love should not produce a tongue-tied people, a closed-lipped people. No, they are to explode in praise for such love. They should pour forth thanksgiving. Verse 2 calls for all the redeemed to speak up. It's time to shout out for to be silent and to withhold thanks could be the worst kind of pride imaginable. If we were able to interact with the psalmist and he were to observe our, our locked lips, our quietness, I, I wonder if he might say things and, and, and question us a little bit. I wonder if he might say, now, you don't mean to insinuate by your silence here that, that you consider yourself worthy of this sort of Godward redemption, do you? You don't, you don't really think that. Do you believe God is lucky to have you on His team? Do you believe that you're the complete spiritual package such that you're exempt from offering this kind of thanks? No, we are all on the same footing. We are all in dire straits, in need of rescue. Although this flies under our radar so often, Romans 1 tells us that one of the vilest sins that a person can commit is a failure to thank God. We don't think of that all that often, do we? Romans 1.21 says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We see these opening verses assume that the promises of Isaiah regarding a second exodus out of Babylon have been fulfilled. 
He, Isaiah writes in 35.10, And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The psalmist is saying those who have personally experienced this kind of redemption, God's redemption, should be those who are shouting the loudest. Those who know it. Who really know it. Now, to illustrate this point, this might be the, the, the difference between my own personal enjoyment of the freedom that I have in this country, for which I'm very thankful, I'm sure you're thankful as well, and the thankfulness of someone like Louis Zamperini. Perhaps you've heard of him. Louis Zamperini was... Uh, the U.S. Olympic athlete from the 1936 Olympic Games in Berlin. He went on to survive a plane crash in the Pacific, only to suffer immense pain in a Japanese prisoner of war camp, all while serving his country during the Second World War. My point is that when Louis was finally set free from that Japanese prisoner of war camp, he understood freedom in a way I don't, have a, I don't have a clue. I just don't understand what this man went through. But if anyone appreciates it, it's someone who has personally experienced it, right? Well, the same reality is present here in Psalm 107. For those Israelites who personally experienced freedom finally from their exile in a foreign land, how could they, of all people, not burst forth with thanksgiving to God. So verses 1 through 3 form a grand introduction to this psalm and, and as well as the final book, 107 through 150 of the, the rest of the Psalter, form a wonderful introduction calling all the redeemed to thank God for His character and for their redemption. So we see beginning in verse 4, these stories of redemption start to come at us rapid fire. So in verses 4 through 32, we find the heart of this psalm. This section has a, a repetition to it. It has a parallelism that cannot be missed. Perhaps you picked up on it as we were just reading through it together. And we see, hopefully you can see this all right on the screen, we see this cycle happen in all four of the stories here. We see finally this recognition of the peril and the distress that these characters and these individuals find themselves in. They realize they are hopeless if God doesn't do something. So what do they do? They call out. They call out to Him. And God, rather than saying, you know what, I've been doing this day after day after day all over this planet. Give me a break. And He doesn't turn a deaf ear. But in all four accounts, he chooses to deliver. And what's the only right response? It's finally into thanksgiving. So we'll see this and be mindful of this cycle as we read through here. The cycle conveys God's children in some kind of distress and the call to render thanks to their Redeemer God. As one man writes, consider these stories as open paradigms so that you might fill in your story and see your own stories of redemption for yourselves. 
The first story here, we find a man wandering in a desert land. In verses 4 and 5 we read, Some wandered in desert wastes, finding no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted within them. So this first story surely serves as a reminder of Israel's first wandering as a nation that lasted 40 years. However, it could also be a reference to those who fled Jerusalem during the Babylonian invasion in 587 B.C. Perhaps it is a general metaphorical reference to a place that's simply far from the presence of God. Regardless, the meaning is clear here. Wilderness journeys are oftentimes graveyards for travelers. The lack of a city to provide food, water, shelter, and protection means the travelers are in rough shape. So verse 6 reads here, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. Since they couldn't find a city of refuge on their own, verse 7 reveals that God leads them to such a place of refuge. And finally, in verses 8 and 9, there's this call to thanksgiving. So let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love, for His wondrous works for the children of men. For He satisfies the longing soul, and the hungry soul He fills with good things. God delivers, and thus He is deserving of thanks. He satisfies both physically and spiritually. The second story that we see here, we see imprisonment in verses 10 through 16. Whereas the first story speaks of a distress that comes from too much space in the wilderness, the second story speaks to a distress of too little space, namely imprisonment. So verses 10 through 12 reads, Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So He bowed their hearts down with hard labor. They fell down with none to help. So there's a difference between the first and the second story, isn't there? If you notice, it's clear that the characters in the second story are where they are because of what? Because they have rebelled against God and against His Word. And in his love for them, what does he do? God humbles their hearts with pain, with the pain of imprisonment, so that they might make a beeline for him, so that they might seek him. Over and over again throughout the Old Testament, God makes it very clear that it is to Israel's peril should they ever forget their bondage in Egypt. Nor were they to take lightly their more recent captivity in Babylon. And through their pain, God is still pursuing their hearts, even amidst the pain, which is actually a gift. And instead of growing deeper into their rebellion, we once again see their genuine plea to God for help. In verses 13 through 16, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress, brought them out of the darkness and the shadow of death, burst their bonds apart. So let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love and for His wondrous works to the children of men. For He shatters the doors of bronze and cuts in two the bars of iron. Once again, God does not turn a deaf ear. 
The language used here, darkness, shadow of death, chains, doors of bronze, bars of iron, these cannot be interpreted as just mere discomfort. No, this truly is the shadow of death for this individual. And God is the only one that can deliver him. Let's not miss this. These people are where they are. This individual is where he is or she is because of their rebellion, because of their sin. Sometimes we can listen to our own voices within ourselves and we can say, well, this isn't technically a trial. It's not, a, it's not suffering because I brought it on myself. So I just got to you know, learn from my mistakes and move on. And we put it in sort of a separate category. I just got to deal with this punishment on my own. Don't miss the fact that God still desires for you to cry out to Him wherever you find your pain. Whether it's 82% your fault and the rest is just some event that happened to come your way, call out to Him. Call out to Him. He stands in love, ready to forgive, deliver, and rescue. The third story we find here in verses 17 through 22. Like the previous group in the second category, the second story here, who earned their trouble, so to speak, due to their rejection of God and His Word, this third group similarly finds themselves sick or wounded because of their sinfulness. Derek Kidner, one commentator on the Psalms writes, the fools in Scripture are the perverse, not the unintelligent. It is not a matter of just not knowing the truth. The truth is simply just not valuable to this character in this third story. So we read in verses 17 and 18, some were fools through their sinful ways, and because of their iniquities suffered affliction. They loathed any kind of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. So this group of fools is suffering physically as a direct result of their sinful ways. Their affliction is very serious, for they are at the gates of death. They are on their deathbed, such that neither food or natural sustenance is of any help to them. They loathe such food. And even though they have clearly chosen the path of the fool, and they have been well acquainted with this headlong pursuit of sin's fleeting pleasures, in a moment of clarity, what do they do? They realize that they've hit rock bottom like the prodigal, and they call out to God, and what is his response? Verses 19 through 22, then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He sent out His Word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love and for His wondrous works to the children of man. And let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His deeds in songs of joy. The healing agent for this rebellious deathbed-stricken prodigal is none other than the life-giving force of the Word of God. Do you see that there? In verse 20, He sent out His Word and healed them. 
If the Word of God can create all things and the incarnate Word is able to sustain all things with simply the Word of His power, as Hebrews states, it only makes sense that God would apply His most potent medicine that has historically been very, very, very good at making dead things alive since, oh, the beginning of time. His Word is able to do this. And so the rhythm of this psalm beats on with a continuous call for thanksgiving. Let us thank this life-restoring, always merciful, consistently forgiving and loving God who acts in unbelievably kind ways. Even in the midst of man's foolish love affair with sin, God delivers. This is grace. In the fourth story we see here, we find peril at sea. Verses 23 through 27 reads, Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, His wondrous works in the deep. For He commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. So finally, this fourth story parallels the first story in that the desert and the sea are oftentimes depicted as the furthest places from God. And yet these sailors are no fools because they're actively, they are not actively rebelling against God's authority as in the second and third stories. These sailors are marveling at God's wondrous works, and yet they are scared out of their minds, aren't they? They don't know what to do with these hurricane-force winds and this hurricane-like storm that they find themselves in. They are staggering and reeling as if they are drunken men. So what do they do? Well, they do the same thing that the last three instances did. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and and He brought them to their desired haven. Let them thank the Lord for His steadfast love and for His wondrous works to the children of man. Let them extol Him in the congregation of the people and praise Him in the assembly of the elders." So once again, the Lord hears and once more chooses to deliver by calming the storm and sending them on to their desired location. In verses 33 through 42, we see these reasons for praise. So in these verses, the psalmist's tone becomes a little less strident, a little less rapid-fire story upon story upon story where God delivers and thus He's worthy of our thanksgiving. And he he becomes a little more meditative. And while he has been telling story after story, so we might conclude, how can someone not thank this kind of a God? Now he writes this brief hymn to simply communicate this main point. God has the power to change anything. Anything. Any one, any circumstance, any trial, anything no matter how bleak the scenario might look. Listen to the psalmist describe 
the sovereign hand of God. In verse 33, a fruitful land, I'm sorry, he turns rivers into a desert, springs of water into thirsty ground, a fruitful land into a salty waste because the evil of its inhabitants. He turns a desert into pools of water, a parched land into springs of water, and there he lets the hungry dwell, and they establish a city to dwell in. They sow fields and plant vineyards and get a fruitful yield. By his blessing, they multiply greatly, and he does not let their livestock diminish. When they are diminished and brought low through oppression, evil, and sorrow, he pours contempt on princes and makes them wander in trackless ways. But he raises up the needy out of affliction and makes their families like flocks. The upright see it and are glad, and all wickedness shuts its mouth. With God, fertile, bountiful lands can become the most barren wastelands overnight, should he simply just send out his word. Opulent princes who appear to, who appear to be self-sufficient in every conceivable category are made to be those like the character in the first story who are wandering in a desert wasteland. Our sovereign God is able to turn all things according to His will. Even the things that appear the most immovable. John Calvin writes concerning these verses, quote here on the screen, The joy mentioned in verse 42 arises from this, that there is nothing more calculated to increase our faith than the knowledge of the providence of God. Because without it, we would be harassed with doubts and fears, being uncertain whether this world is governed by chance. The knowledge of God's providence brings a calm state of mind. So what silences the wicked, this sovereign hand of God, is the very thing that causes the righteous to just rejoice and to give thanks, because we know that things aren't always as they appear. And behind a frowning providence often will lie the smiling face of God. Regardless of where you find your situation this morning, your most bleak, hopeless scenarios, know that God is at work, even if you caused yourself to be in that situation, hard as it might be. Your sovereign God desires for you to call to Him. And verse 43 finally concludes this psalm, Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let them consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So this psalm won't let us leave the room until we learn something. It is intended to instruct us. Much like the continual call of the Proverbs, we must get wisdom from this psalm. We must. We can't walk away unchanged after seeing the things that we've just seen in these stories. We must meditate. We must ponder. We must consider. We must contemplate deeply the steadfast love of the Lord. I think sometimes we can forget that we still have the same hymnal, the same songbook 
in our laps this morning that Jesus would have sung week after week during his earthly ministry. You realize that? Think of the relics and the the things from the past that we consider old and that we are amazed that they've been preserved. Jesus, his songbook, his hymnal is with us, preserved. We're reading it this morning. This very psalm, word for word, would have flowed off the lips of God incarnate. I wonder what connections he was making as he was reading this psalm. In some ways, he experienced things very similar to those individuals in this psalm. Like the desert wanderer, Jesus himself knew great hunger in his wilderness temptations. Although he was the epitome of royalty, he had no place to lay his head. And like the imprisoned captive, Jesus himself knew what it was like to suffer affliction at the hands of unjust men. Although he was without sin, he was taken custody and treated rudely and eventually sentenced to a cruel death on a cross. And even more fascinating, as the second member of the Godhead, Jesus fulfills in his earthly ministry nearly every single description made of God the Father in this psalm. In Mark 6, Jesus fed the hungry in the wilderness. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus liberated those bound by demonic powers. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus healed and forgave the sick. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus stilled the storms of the sea. So we're not stretching it to say that Jesus Christ is the full manifestation of the steadfast love of the Lord. It is our Savior who can deliver us still today from every trouble, trial, or hardship that we would ever face. So perhaps you find yourself, or you don't find yourself, in an actual desert wasteland. That doesn't match your memories and your experiences. Perhaps you've never been imprisoned or deathly ill on your deathbed or been on a ship that's about to be smashed to smithereens. I don't think I've fit any of those. But I wonder if we have stories of deliverance for us today. Most of us, I would imagine, might. But there are some that may not. I wonder if some of those gathered here this morning do not have a story of rescue. You simply have never cried out to the Lord in your trouble. And consequently, you've never experienced Him delivering you from your distress, your most pressing distress. Can I ask you, what hope do you have? Elsewhere in the Bible, every one of these stories in the psalm are used as metaphors for your spiritual plight, for the spiritual plight of everyone outside of Christ's rescue. Your soul is withering away in a trackless wasteland far from God. You're imprisoned away by your own evil choices and desires. You've had an incurable sickness from birth that your foolish choices have only worsened. And you might as well be sinking on a tattered ship in the ocean. What awful news, right? Well, sort of. Because it's actually the news that is about to give the greatest message to you. For if you don't realize that 
and agree with the words of the God of the Bible about your condition, you have no prayer of rescue. These are actually the kindest words someone could ever say to you. Will you call out to the God of the Bible who promises He will deliver you if you repent of your sins and believe in the rescuing power of His Son, Jesus Christ? He's the greatest rescuer in all the world and He stands ready to save. Will you call out to Him and agree with Him about how lost you truly are and accept His rescuing forgiveness? Well, perhaps you've already done this. Perhaps this is something that you know in your heart. You know your life is hid with Christ and God. Well, perhaps like the desert wanderer and the sailors, you find yourself in a trial that feels every bit as devastating as theirs. Are you crying out to God? Are you opening your voice, your mouth, speaking to Him? Like the lament we considered last week, will you face Godward in your pain? Or will you, in a whining sort of mentality, turn away from Him? Is your view of God such that if you are continually aware of His sovereign controls in your life, you can have confidence in the details? You see, it isn't a matter of if God will deliver you if you're His child. For even if this trial takes your life, Beholding His face will be the kindest act of deliverance He could ever provide. But what does thanksgiving look like in your life? We can't read this psalm and not be impressed with this continual repetition, call to give thanks. This is largely why I wanted to preach this psalm this morning. Because it's how God's been working in my heart and has been upsetting things in my life with my lack of doing this on a consistent basis. Like the ten lepers that Jesus healed on the road to Jerusalem in Luke 17, the tragedy was that only one of them returned and paused long enough to actually realize what had just happened to him and to return and express genuine thanks. What I have been learning in my own life is that it is quite difficult to break God's commands while I'm offering up a heart of thanksgiving. It is quite difficult to bear false witness or to gossip or to slander or, or to be a busybody against one church member, against another, when I am thanking God for the steadfast love that He has made manifest in that church member's life. It's really hard to do those at the same time seeing their former life dominated by harmful sin habits and observing the larger work of God in their life rather just than that little passing comment where I felt snubbed or I wasn't valued or he sort of wronged, rubbed me the wrong way. But I'm understanding and I'm thanking God for his steadfast love in that person's life. Is that our mindset? It is quite difficult to be envious of my neighbor's house or my neighbor's wife, or my neighbor's physical possessions, as the Ten Commandments say, when I am thanking God for His abundant provisions, modest though they might be by some standards. It's quite difficult to obsess over money, power, and prestige when our mouths are pouring forth praise and thanksgiving to our covenant Lord who owns all things, who occupies all power and reigns above all. 
teens and children. It is quite difficult to dishonor your mother and your father by griping, complaining, or wasting excessive amounts of time and money on worthless things when you're consistently thanking God for His kindness to you and providing a home, parents, and more provisions than you're probably even aware of. Are you thanking your Lord? You name the sinful vice that might be on the front burner of your heart this morning. And I have confidence that the thanksgiving is a way of countering that with the steadfast love of the Lord. It's as if God is saying, stop this insane thinking that if you had fill in the blank, you'd finally be happy. Stop this. I am all you need. Consider the steadfast love of the Lord. Meditate on it. Fixate on it. Rehearse story after story, even as a, as a community of faith here this morning. Hear one another's stories of redemption and thank your covenant Lord for those stories and the fuel they are to the fire that is your faith. May we continually allow Eden, may God continually allow Eden Baptist Church to be a place where we honestly face God in the midst of our trials, but we permeate our conversations with thanksgiving for how God is active in us and among us. We do this as we worship together. We do this as we fellowship together, as we share meals together, as we serve side by side together, as we cry together, as we rejoice together, as we disciple one another to greater places of spiritual health. May God's church be ground zero for our growth and giving thanks. We can't let one another forget the steadfast love of the Lord. It's a good thing if it feels repetitious. The psalmist knows that, and we need it. So finally, let's look to our Savior, Jesus Christ, that great deliverer of our faith, who will one day finally deliver us into the very presence of our sovereign Lord, whose steadfast love does endure forever. Having these things freshly on our minds, would you pause in thanksgiving as I lead us in thanks to God for His Word? Father, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, how dare we forget to thank You we're breathing, we're alive, we're in the top fraction of just the wealthiest people to ever walk on this planet. Most of us have good health. We have just unparalleled privileges. Shouldn't we of all people be the most thankful? And yet, God, we know these gifts have not done what you would have them to do. They have not caused us to elicit thanksgiving one breath after the next. We have turned and said, give us more. Oh God, forgive us, but yet give us the confidence that at any moment 
when we feel we are at rock bottom, we might call out to you with confidence that just as you delivered us fully and completely from our sins in Jesus Christ, you will deliver us amidst our trials today, even if that means the end of our lives, knowing that seeing you is the greatest deliverance of all. Father, we rejoice with the psalmist. Help us to learn one another's stories of redemption and that these stories of our rescue would permeate this church. Oh God, we need you. Accept our hearts, the cries of our hearts as we seek to allow this to be part of the fabric of our speech and of our lives. It's for your glory that we pray these things. Amen.